proof number one that Peter gave to prove the messiahship of Jesus, and that is the miracles of Jesus. He opens right up by saying in verse 22, men of Israel, and he says, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. Fires right off by bringing to their minds the miracles of Jesus. And he does this after attributing the miracles of Pentecost to the prophetic word of God in Joel 2, which all applies to Jesus as well. After he goes through this sort of uh, uh, tying the prophecy of Joel 2 to the the, uh, events of Pentecost, he then moves his audience again by calling for their attention. Once again, I talked about this last week, how he stood up and sort of addressed them. And it says that he raised his voice. And so uh, he does that again here. He calls out to them and says, men of Israel. And then he brings Jesus to the front and center of his address. He says, Jesus of Nazareth. He calls him by that particular title. This was the name by which our Lord was most commonly known as during his ministry. He was referred to as Jesus of Nazareth. It identified him with his hometown of Nazareth where he grew up. Um, In fact, Jesus of Nazareth was uh, inscripted upon the cross above his head. Jesus of Nazareth, what? King of the Jews. This was a a very common name that he was called by. Um, And yet, Nazareth was held in very low regard. Um, Think of a small town that isn't held in high regard. Don't say it out loud because somebody here might live there, so don't jack them up. But just think of, think of a town that's not a place in which you would choose to live. You know, it's not the most attractive place. Maybe there's trash on the streets, graffiti, which is what Modesto is all about. I mean, some of you are probably thinking, Modesto, yeah, you nailed it. Yeah, I, I feel you. Uh, but think of a, a place that wouldn't be all that appealing to live. And, and, and quite frankly and honestly, Nazareth wasn't one of those places. It wasn't a place that... You know, oh, I, I, I'm moving to Nazareth. Why? Why would you move there? This is how people felt then and thought then. And one of the main reasons was not so much as that it was dumpy. We, I don't really know how dumpy it was, if it was dumpy or not, but the fact that they had a Roman garrison stored there. The Romans took it and, and sort of, uh, they didn't turn it into like a fortress, but they used it to store troops and siege rams and supplies. And so the way that the common Jew in that day uh, interpreted that was that the people in Nazareth were in cahoots with the Romans, which were their bitter enemies. And so because the Romans came in there and seized power and took control of Nazareth and put forces there and you know military brigades there and stuff like that, everyone else around said, look at them, they're a bunch of traitors. They let the Romans come in and do that. The thing that I've always marveled at is, what choice do you have? We're talking about the Romans. I mean, if they come in and want to take your city, they come in and take your city. You can't stand against them. They were the most lethal force probably throughout all history. They were amazing. They were conquerors. They were barbarians. They were organized. And so people pretty much hated Nazareth because it wasn't a very attractive place, farm town way out in the middle of nowhere. It was at a crossroads, like kind of a highway intersection. And the Romans had a stronghold there, and so people despised it. They despised the place. Uh, Thinking of the, the way that people viewed Nazareth, it's really amazing when Jesus kind of began his Galilean uh, tour of, of ministry, um, he came across uh, some individuals, and, and, and one of them, who later became 
uh, an apostle and, and true follower of Christ, when he found out that Jesus was from Nazareth, he said what? Can anything good come from Nazareth? He actually said it in front of Jesus. You know, it's like, can anything good come from there? You know, this place is a dive, you know. And so we get kind of a sense of, of how people, um, uh, how Nazareth was uh, uh, below reproach, so to speak. And so in a way, when Peter calls Jesus, Jesus of Nath- Nazareth here, this is a mild rebuke against his listeners. Uh, first of all, for rejecting Jesus based upon where he was from. You know, Jesus never even got out of the gate with many folks in that community as far as being the Messiah, the chosen one, God sent Holy Son, Messiah. He never really got out of the gate just based upon the fact that people didn't like where he was from. They rejected him immediately because of where he was from. Oh, there's no way. There's no way the Messiah can come from that dive. And so Peter, by using that title, is reminding them that, hey, you despised him because of where he's from. There's a mild rebuke in Peter's title here. He's saying Jesus of Nazareth. And then he goes on to say a lot of other things about him and how they killed him and crucified him and all those things. And then it just kind of all ties together. Really interesting. But the thing that I think that's really cool about the, the name Jesus of Nazareth is that it illustrates and reflects his wonderful condescension in leaving the glory of heaven to live in and to be raised in a very, very meager and humble Galilean village. I mean, can you imagine leaving the glories of heaven? Spectacular. Holy, holy, holy is the theme song up there, right? I mean, just what a spectacular sight here we get of heaven and the thrones and and the worship that's happening there and just this this beauty and magnificence. and, And he steps and he condescends out of those glories to live in Nazareth. Uh, like stepping out of the most posh palace in Beverly Hills to live in... <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to say it, but I'll let you say it, you know. Out of, a, out of a mansion in Beverly Hills to live in a triplex in Modesto or whatever. Some of you are going, I live in a triplex. What do you mean by that? Yeah, whatever. Don't take it personal. But, I mean, it, and it's so far beyond that. I mean, heaven is incomparable compared to what we have here. The greatest place here, the greatest island resort, you know, or whatever. And so the name Jesus of Nazareth, just it reminds us, reminds us of how he condescended to come down to us, to live in a humble Galilean village. Now, Peter goes on to describe Jesus as what? As a man attested to them, to his listeners, by God. This was Peter's way of saying that Jesus had been sent and authenticated by God the Father. He continues by giving a list of miraculous proofs that support this reality, that support the reality that he had been sent by God, that he had been attested to them by God. He gives just a a brief little summary of things. He lists three things that were present during the Lord's ministry. What does he say? He says they're mighty works. Look at it in the text. Mighty works. What are these mighty works? Mighty works is, is powerful miracles. The word used there for powerful or whatever is dunamis, dynamite. Powerful, impactful miracles. Doing things that others cannot do, could never do. He was attested to them by God through mighty works. Powerful dunamis miracles. And then he says another one. He, he says wonders. What are these wonders? You know what the wonders are? 
the wonders are the reaction of the folks that witnessed the miraculous works or the mighty works. They were filled with wonder. They were awestruck by what, by what they were witnessing, by what they were seeing. And, and quite frankly, I think if we saw him stop a storm or feed a bunch of people out of almost nothing and all that, I think we would be pretty awestruck, would we not? And then 15 minutes later, we'd be going, I don't believe you anymore. Do another one, you know, because that's our nature, right? I mean, it's just we're ridiculous. Uh, but people were filled with wonder. He performed wonders, which means he did things that invoked wonder in the hearts and minds and eyes of folks. And then he lists another one, and that is signs. And signs are basically the mighty works and wonders and those things, but signs are things that ultimately point to spiritual truth. You know, his miracles had a purpose behind them. They weren't miracles for the sake of miracles. They weren't wonders for the sake of just making people go, wow. You know, they weren't signs just for the sake of showing signs. All of these things had purposes behind them. And then if you look at 22, verse 22 again, you'll see that it says that God did the miracles through him. Uh, yeah, you, some of you are going to take issue with this. But the reality is, is that Jesus didn't perform the miracles on his own accord or through his own power or ability. Quite frankly, he had relinquished so much of that power and glory and honor and those things that, were, uh, that have always belonged to him. And in some miraculous way, he set those things aside to condescend. That's not to say that he was fully without power and ability. Of course not. But the reality is, is that God is the one who was doing these things through the Messiah through his son. This statement that Peter makes here is meant to do away with the notion that Jesus was a sorcerer or a magician or that the miraculous abilities that he had had come from somewhere or from someone other than God. Now, people accuse Jesus of this all the time during his ministry. Oh, he works the power of miracles through the prince of demons, Beelzebub. These are the kinds of things that people said about him or of him when he did miraculous signs and mighty works and wonders and these things. Uh, there were some people there that attributed it to God, there's no doubt, but there were many folks around during his ministry that just said, no, it's, it's because of the demons that he does these things, or it's because of this, or it's because he's a sorcerer, or it's because he's a magician, you know, a little sleight of hand. Don't fall for his card tricks is what the Pharisees would teach others. And so Peter says, hey, 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 it's God who was doing these miracles through him. It's the Father who was doing these miracles through him. Now, Peter was fully aware of these thoughts and beliefs, and therefore he boldly attributed the miracles of Jesus to God. And then at the end of 22, he reminds them of how they were witnesses to the mighty works, wonders, and signs. Okay, Many of these people that were in the audience that he was preaching this sermon to were present maybe during the Passion Week because he still did some miracles during that. Maybe some of them were even followers of Jesus to some degree and when discipleship got a little tougher because Jesus you know, definitely sifted the crowds. He didn't want just anyone following him uh, for the sake that you know, they could just follow him in the way that they wanted to follow him. He, he turned the heat up on discipleship. Hey, take up your cross. Hey, I was following you until you said that, but I'm definitely not willing to go that far for you. I mean, he sifted the crowds. He did these things. And so many of these folks 
may have been following him for some time or were present during his Passion Week or had saw how he healed seven lepers or, I mean, you know, we, we mustn't forget what the end of the Gospel of John says in 21:25. Do you remember what that says? It says, now there are also many things that Jesus did. Okay, he just got done telling his audience or his readers that he had done a lot of stuff. And now he says, and, and there's more things. And then he says, were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that they would be written in. I, he's using a little hyperbole, but the reality is Jesus did a lot of stuff. He performed a lot of mighty works. He put a lot of people in a state of wonder, and he performed a lot of signs that pointed ultimately to who he said he was and to his messiahship and to the fact that he was God and those things. He did so many things that there weren't anyone, there weren't people in the audience, you know, uh, that were unaware of who he was and what he had done. And, and Peter simply says, I, you were witnesses to these things. He's probably looking out there and go, hey, Sammy, I saw you there two months ago. You know, he may have saw Freddie, Freddie. Oh, I don't know. Really? Wasn't it your hand that was shriveled? Yeah, but, I mean, we don't know what was playing out, but he reminds them, and, 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 and the notion here is that there were people present that fully understood and knew what was happening, and they had witnessed those things. And so here's the reality. People in those days did not deny that Jesus had the power to perform these things because the proof was overwhelming. That's not to say that there weren't a few people in there that maybe came in at the last moment like, what's going on in here? You know, they had no idea because they were from some other part of the, you know, land or from a Roman province up north. There were a lot of people from all over the world at this, at this Feast of Weeks. But the reality and fact that Jesus was a miracle worker was not denied by most people then. They, 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 the stuff was, there was just too much to deny it. You know, it's not like he did one little miracle and it's like the five people that saw it were like, oh, there's no doubt. And then everyone else is like, come on. No, he didn't do five. He did 500. He did 5,000. I we don't know. He did so much that, that there weren't people present that just, they didn't rejected that notion or rejected that. You know, even his most bitter enemies believed that he worked mighty works. Uh, wonders and signs. At a council meeting in John eleven forty six 46 to 53, the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees had come together and they declared something just incredible. And they said, what are we going to do with this Jesus? For he is performing many signs. And then it says that they plotted for how to capture and kill him. Oh, he's stealing our thunder. Look at this guy. He's unstoppable. Look at it. If we don't stop him now, what will become of us? I mean, they were just blown away by the sheer magnitude of the things that he did. He did a lot of stuff. And so the question isn't, you know, did people reject his miracles? I think they may have rejected the meaning of them or the deeper truth or where they came from, but that no one could say he wasn't a miracle worker. Now, what's incredible to me is that there is a growing contingency of Christian scholars and theologians in the world today who believe and teach that Jesus really didn't perform any of these things, that he really didn't do any of these things, that they're all metaphor, or that they're all some sort of an example, or that they were some sort of act of nature, or something of that matter. In fact, many of these theologians and scholars reject 
uh, the resurrection. They say that it was a farce, that he really wasn't dead or he was sleeping or whatever it is. There's a, there's a growing contingency of these people. And quite frankly, most of them, well, probably not most of them, but many of them belong to a group called the Jesus Seminar. Maybe you've heard of that group. Maybe you've been walking the aisles of a bookstore and, you know, maybe a Christian bookstore. Why it'd be there, I don't know. Because if it says Christian on it, then we just believe it's Christian. But if you see anything published by the Jesus Seminar, take it off the shelf and burn it. No, don't do that because you don't have to pay for it. But uh, don't read it. It's, it's worthless rubbish. The Jesus Seminar is opposed to Jesus. That's the reality. That's the fact. They reject all of his miracles. They reject the resurrection. They, re- they even try to twist some of the things that he taught and said. And no, it's okay to do this and, because Jesus never said it wasn't or whatever. I mean, they're just, they're just a, a, a twisted group. And, and some of the scholars that belong to it are people like Bart Ehrman. Have you ever heard of that guy? Good. How about, how about, how about John Dominic Crossan? You ever seen that guy on Discovery Channel? Got glasses, silver hair, he's in a pre-suit. Well, Jesus really did not stop the storm. What happened was the wind blew at a fourth-degree intellectual angle, and it, you know, I mean, these guys, and and it's, it's always the Discovery Channel. Okay, sometimes you can catch some pretty good programming on the History Channel, right? There's a huge difference with the Discovery Channel. Discovery Channel is what? Not that all science is bad, Aaron. I get it. There's Christian scientists. Praise the Lord. He teaches science. I don't want to nuke him right now. Just a little bit. Piquito. But not all the way. But you turn on the Discovery Channel, and you're liable to see John, or this Crossan, Dominic, Yahoo, I mean, guy, or Bart Ehrman, or any of these other guys that are on there. And they're basically on there talking about Jesus, and they're writing books about Jesus, and they're ultimately rejecting the things that Jesus did and taught, which makes them not Christian. And it's amazing to me that you had all these people back in Jesus' day, and they were like, yeah, he performed miracles. I'm not going to believe why he did them, but he did them. But today we have Christians. You see, it's just insanity. What is it, 2,000 years after the fact now we can't believe in these things because all that time's passed, and we've got better science and better... Oh, you know, nothing's any better. It's worse. I look at the Bart Ehrmans and the... Dominic Crossan's as tares amongst the wheat. You ever read the parable about the tares and the wheat? How the farmer separates the tares from the wheat? The wheat being the true believers and the tares being the false believers? What does he do with the tares? Cast them into the fire. Unless they repent, unless they come to the reality here, stay away from those guys. And there's a lot of them out there. Be careful with what you read and put yourself in front of. I think paraphrased, verse 22 would sound like this. I like to do a little paraphrasing. The modern vernacular. That was weird. And here's, I think, what Peter said. All of you saw with your own eyes the things Jesus did. And and frankly, I'm here to tell you that it was God who did those things through him. This, this is huge, what he says. In this little paraphrase, the way that he puts it, it's like, all right, he did all these things, these wonders, these works, and all these things, and guess what? It was God who did those things. I'm here to tell you it was God who did those things through them. This is going to shock the audience. The audience is going to now begin to really listen. 
Okay, we don't want to miss something that God may have done or might be doing here. And so he grabs their attention with these statements that he's made. And so it's the miracles of Jesus that he begins with. That's the proof that he's the Messiah, the first one. And the second proof is that the crucifixion was God's predetermined plan. That might be the one that I wrestled with the most this week. That's a challenging thing. That's a challenging thing to understand, that God had laid all these things out and that in our own freedom, we actually fulfill the things of God without being cognitive of that. I mean, that's, that's a challenging thing to wrap your mind around, right? It's like we're chess pieces, but we're not. It's just a bizarre thing. But he says this, he makes this point, the crucifixion was God's predetermined plan in 23. This is where it's at. He says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. There's that whole idea. And then he says, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You know, Peter had a tremendous ability to discern his listeners' thoughts. Does anyone in here have, like, the incredible gift of discernment? where you can be around people and you can just listen or even, even maybe you don't even listen, maybe you can just look at them and you can look at their countenance and, and you can kind of tell what they're thinking or what's buried in there and what they're pondering, maybe in response to something that you said or a response to an event. That's discernment and it's an amazing thing. And, and Peter had this incredible ability to discern what his listeners uh, were thinking. He knew that they would be asking themselves this question. If Jesus was so great and powerful, if he were truly God's anointed, miracle-working Messiah, as you say, Peter, then why didn't he save himself? Why did he die? See, that's what would be going through the mind of the Jew. Because it's inconceivable to the Jewish mind for the Jewish mind to accept the reality that the Messiah would come and die. Because in their mind, the Messiah would never die because he's indestructible. And so the theme of the gospel is the Messiah came and he died for your sin, right? That's part of the gospel, right? That's so unacceptable in the Jewish mind and in the Jewish faith. They reject that wholeheartedly, wholeheartedly. It's inconceivable that God's sent king would come and do such a thing. He would never be subjected to Romans. <laughs> no, he comes and whoops them. There's no way. This is an incredible thing that Peter is saying here. He is saying, look, it's God who delivered him up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge, according to his definite plan and foreknowledge, is what he's saying. And so now they're going, okay, he's powerful, he works miracles. Yeah, we're not going to reject that. We saw that. Now you're saying it was God's plan to have, him, have this happen to him? It can't be. It's impossible. There's no way God would never do that with his son, let alone his Messiah, is what was going through their mind. Uh, a comment similar to what I just read was actually made by some of the religious leaders in Romans uh, some 50-something days earlier when Jesus was dying on the cross at Golgotha. I mean, they, they, what did they say to him? If you're the Messiah, bring yourself down. Save yourself. Because if you're really the Messiah, you'll not only have the ability to do that, you will do it. You won't be put to death by these guys with the brooms on their heads. You know, there's no way. 
These are the things that they uttered at the cross. And they mocked him and, and, and yelled profanity at him in these things and said, oh, if he's the Messiah, if you're the Messiah, bring yourself down while he's bleeding out and he's got the crown of thorns and he's, he's, just, he's just a bloody mess. Bring yourself down. Aren't you glad he didn't bring himself down? Ugh. Okay. You know, and like a transformer comes down and, you know, oh, man, we're lost. No, please stay up there. I think people that understood it, and I don't know if there were any there that, that day, they were saying, no, please don't listen to them. Stay up there. I need your blood. You know? Now, Peter sensed the doubts of his audience. He knew their upbringing. He knew their religion. He had been brought up in that system of religion. He knew himself how hard it was to comprehend the notion that the Messiah would suffer and die and that would be a part of God's plan. I mean, that was a difficult truth, I think, for even the apostles to accept. They acted like meatheads during the entire ministry of Jesus, and like they were always waiting for him to take his throne, so they believed what most others believe. But not at this point, they don't. They understand. And so he knows it's hard for them to comprehend and understand. Peter sensed the doubts, maybe even heard some grumblings out there. Oh, if he was so good, if he was so powerful and if he was really the messiah why did he die he wouldn't have died he would have smashed everyone around him in lightning bolts and chariots of fire and <laughs> cannon blasts and tanks and uh, who knows what they were thinking and he responded because he has discernment with an incredible statement about god's sovereign plan and foreknowledge in combination with god being the miracle worker through jesus he said god is the one that what delivered him up. What a powerful thought. Delivered is ekdotos in Greek, and it means to be handed over, to be given over. It was God who gave over. It was God who handed Jesus over to be crucified. Frankly, if God doesn't hand him over, it never happens. It was God who Ekdotos, who delivered, who gave him over. Before the cross, before Calvary, Jesus testified to this in John 10.18, did he not? He said this in John 10.18. He said, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of what? My own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up. This charge I have received from my Father. You can see it so clearly. Jesus willfully laid it down. The Father delivered him, and Jesus willfully laid it down. It was God's choice to deliver him over. It was God's work to lay him down and to turn him over. Then Peter tells them that Jesus was delivered up according to what? The definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Definite is horizo. And it's where we get our English word for horizon. You've heard that word. Maybe you've used it. Over the horizon. It's where we get our word horizon. It means to mark out with a boundary or to determine. Plan is boule. It sounds like a French word, boule. And it means to decree. So we have the definite plan. It's a decree. And then we have a boundary, the horizon, or something that has been predetermined. Taken together, when you take... Um, horizon, and you put it together with boule, you end up with Jesus being delivered to death because God had planned and ordained it 
from all eternity. And that's backed up in Acts 4, 27 to 28, and Acts 13, 27 to 29, and 2 Tim 1, 9, Revelation 13, 8, and probably some other places. Look at that word foreknowledge in your Bible there. This has got to be one of the most misunderstood words in all of Scripture. Foreknowledge is prognosis. Prognosis in Greek, which basically means foreordination. Louis Burkhoff wrote this in his systematic theology about prognosis. He said, prognosis in the New Testament does not denote simple intellectual foresight, the mere taking knowledge beforehand, but rather a selective knowledge which regards one with favor and makes one an object of love and thus approaches the idea of foreordination. And he goes on to list where that word is found and prognosis is found, and that's Acts 2.23 where we're at, and Acts 4.28, Romans 8.29, and Romans 11.2, and 1 Peter 1.2, and, and probably in a few other places, but those ones specifically. And then he goes on to say, the idea that God saw in advance that Israel would reject and crucify Christ and then worked that into his eternal plan is a implicit denial both of his sovereignty and omniscience. Okay, basically what Burkhoff said is pretty simple. God didn't work the cross into his plan of salvation based upon some future knowledge of what Israel would do with his son. God had foreordained for things to happen the way that they did. Foreknowledge is not a decision in the Bible. You've got to understand this. Foreknowledge is not a decision that has been made based on an assessment of what's to come, but rather a decision that has been made based upon the counsel of God's sovereign will. You must understand that. God doesn't look out over the future and then base some decisions upon what we do. That's not the way that he operates. He's not subject to what we do or to our decisions. We are subject to his, whether we know it or not. You understand that? This is huge. This is huge because this frustrates some people's view of salvation because I think what God did was that he evaluated and he looked ahead and saw all the people that would believe and then he chose them based on that. And the great question that you can ask, and that's okay, I respect your view if that's your view, but the great question you have to ask is the Bible never, ever, ever says that we have the ability to save ourselves and it never says we have a free will. It says that we have a will, but it's what? Bound by sin. That we will always choose, the Bible always says, it's a major theme in Scripture, we will always choose that which benefits us best. And if we're outside of God, then that's sin. That's sin. And so foreknowledge in Scripture means that God went before and made a choice. Not based on what you did, but based upon what he desires and his providence and what he wanted. That's a hard pill to swallow. But it's a biblical reality. It's what Scripture teaches. Prognosis means God went beforehand and did something. And I, I revel in that and I glory in that because as a sinner, I know that there's nothing that I could do to save myself. I couldn't exercise faith if I wanted to 10 years ago. I had no desire for those things. God had to come and interrupt my life. And guess what? According to Scripture, he had planned to do that long before. And it took place at the appointed time. You see how foreknowledge works? It's very important that we get it right. It's a powerful thing. Ultimately, foreknowledge is an expression of God's love. It really is. It is. God chose you. 
for the very purpose of pulling you into relationship with him. That's what it means. Now, and, and we can continue to wrestle with that because there's other things in Scripture that would indicate that, that man has a responsibility. There's no doubt Peter's about to say so here. How the two work together? Hmm. Unfortunately, we have, we have a whole bunch of people out there that say, I know exactly how they work together. You know, and it's like, ah, uh, I don't know, man. You know, I, I don't know if we know exactly how they work together. You know, I'd like to think that God, if God is going to hold man accountable, then man has to have a play in it, does he not? Yes. And so somehow there's still human responsibility in which Peter's going to illustrate for us. How they work together, I don't know. But we can't go around rejecting the biblical doctrine of foreknowledge. But we also can't go so extreme to where we would say that Oh, every, everyone that God chose is going to be saved, and they never have to do anything but just get saved. No man has a responsibility to respond somehow. It's a, it's a, it's a paradox. It's a paradox. I don't fully understand it, but I'm glad God chose me. But in any case, that's what foreknowledge means. It means that God went beforehand and did something pretty awesome based upon his own will and his own sovereignty and his own choice. It's interesting to know that Israel had carried out the very plan of God, the very plan that God had laid out from everlasting to everlasting before he ever created the world, that they had fulfilled his plan by rejecting and putting him on the cross with absolutely no cognition of that whatsoever. Isn't that the way that it works with God? He, he uses people that have, they give him no homage, no praise, no glory, no nothing, and he still uses them to meet his objectives. Isn't that insane? In fact, I believe he uses all people for those means. He really does. That's incredible to me. Israel, we're going to get rid of this guy. He's a problem so we can keep making temple money and keep our religion going. And they had no idea they were fulfilling the perfect plan and foreordained plan of God. Isn't God wonderful and miraculous and incredible and beyond our comprehension? Wow, what an ugly thing they did to Jesus, and yet it was the plan of God. If you do a, a syntactic or linguistic study, and these are like how you'd study the Greek language. Uh, if you do a, a syntactic or linguistic study of foreknowledge, you will see that it is used, and I just want to bang this point home, you will see that it is, and I want, you to, I want you to get this, because this isn't just commentary that I read that turned me on to this. This is the way that things are written and communicated, which gives them their identity and meaning. If you look at foreknowledge in a syntactic way, you do a linguistic study, of the Greek language, you will see that it is used in the instrumental dative form, which takes it way beyond mere knowledge and places it in the realm of predestination, which is another big word and a hard word to understand and one that people just beat to a pulp because they don't like the idea that God would predestine something or some do eternal life and that he passes over others or whatever. But if you look at it in the original language, it's instrumental dative is the way that it's used. It's used to enunciate something that was forechosen. Very interesting. Now, foreknowledge is by no means the same as prediction. Uh, it, it, you couldn't get more day and night opposition to it. Uh, black and white. It is not the same as, as, as prediction. Nearly everyone has the ability to predict an outcome, right? You don't need much more than a little statistical data, do a little survey of what's happening, and you can pretty much 
predict an outcome, can you not? We all have the ability to do that, I think, to some degree. Um, this is really funny, but, <laughs> oh gosh. You know, I, I work on McHenry, and, and Modesto's got some interesting folks. Because sometimes they walk into the store, right? You know, and you're just like, wow, this guy's a trip, man. And this, you know, I don't know. I thought he was a magic genie. Uh, but I don't know if that's politically correct, not that I care. But there was a guy that came in, and, and he was a palm reader, you know. And, uh, and, and, he, and, he, and honestly, he, he was kind of a cool-looking little guy, man. He was a cute little guy. He had a turban on, and he had like a jewel right here. I thought I was going back and watching the Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know. As long as you don't open that thing, we'll all survive, right? But, you know, he had the jewel here, and, 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 he, and he, his mustache, and, you know, <laughs> and he had like pointed shoes, you know, and he was a short guy. And he was just kind of a cool cat, right? Well, he came over to me, you know, and, and said, I read your palm, you know, and I was like, I'm good, you know. Ah, ah. And so he gets a hold of some of the other guys that work there, you know. And he, he walks up to this one guy who's there all the time, and the, f <laughs> the first thing he says to him, he looks at this guy, he looks him up and down. I mean, I'm watching this whole thing, right? I'm sitting behind the counter, I'm going, this is going to be good. I'm going to get a sermon illustration out of this, I guarantee it. It's happening, <laughs> right? That's how I do it, a little notebook. Oh, yeah. Genie, trick Scott. Yeah. And so... And so he walks up to me, and he, and you know, he's, he's just a, and very nice, very friendly, very kind, and he looks the employee up and down. And then he says to him, I tell you, you are going to be enjoying a good meal very soon. And the guy was like, and he looks over at me, he's like, you know, and I'm like, okay. And so, <laughs> listen, he walks, and then he takes him over to the couch, okay, and then I can see him, and they're over there, and the guy's just like, He's just marveling. The guy's reading his hand and all that, you know, and this wart means you need the, the wart remover. You know, I don't know what he was saying. But he's looking at it, right? And then he comes over, and, and, you know, and 40 bucks later, the guy is just, he's marveling at all these things. And I said, okay, I don't want to pop your balloon, but could it be that the reason why he marveled you with his insight that you were going to enjoy a good meal was because you're a really large guy? And maybe he could tell that you like to eat. And he looked at me like, is that a fat joke? And I said, no, it's not a fat joke at all. I mean, he looked at me like he was going to punch me. He was like, you know, he cocked it. And I said, you know, I said, brother, you're a big guy. You're a husky guy. And we've had lunches together. You could put it away, bro. You don't think that he just walked up and looked you up and down and saw that you were a, a, a big guy and then figured that you were going to have a good meal soon? <laughs> right? You know? And he was like, Oh, crud. Oh, really? You think that that's what he did to me? I said, come on, man. Of course he did. What else did he tell you? And, you know, and he had him take his wallet out, and he did all this stuff. And, and, he, and he, you know, it, it was like 40 bucks later, man. He took his money. I said, you know, he's right outside. He's walking away. Go get him. Go tell him, you know, you said that because I'm large. And give me my money back. He goes, I'm not going to go tell him I'm large and get my money back. And so he let him go. But you see, that's prediction, right? Predictions, like you can look at something and, you know, like, have you ever, like, watched somebody, they're doing something, and immediately you think, they're going to get jacked up right now, I know they're going to get hurt. And you don't do anything about it, and all of a sudden, poof, the cabinet hits them in the face, you're like, I knew it, right? <laughs> I knew that, would, right? That's prediction, right? You know, I know that guy's going to get jacked up right there. Look at him. He's riding a bike backwards down a large hill. He's going to get hurt, right? <laughs> you know, and he gets mangled. Prediction, right? Now, my wife is a phenomenal, and she's not here, so I can talk about her. She, <laughs> she's a phenomenal predictor. But she always predicts me. 
I mean, I'll, you know, I'll do something. And she'll go, I knew you were going to do that. She doesn't have chin hair. I do. You know. <laughs> I knew you were going to do that. And I'm like, how? I've been with you forever. I know. I know you. I know how you think. I know how you operate. She can predict just about anything that I do. She knows when I'm lying. She knows all these things. So I've decided to buy her a turban and send her into my workplace to make us some extra money. <laughs> Just kidding. That was bad. <laughs> She's always, that's terrible, isn't it? I mean, 40 bucks a head, man. Are you kidding? 40 bucks a victim. I mean customer. I mean, that's a lot of money. No, but she, any one of us can predict. Any one of us can predict. You can predict when your kids are about to do something. You know, it's like, oh, I've seen them do that over and over. Watch what's going to happen. And it happens. You know, or whatever. And so... Foreknowledge is not prediction. And some would teach you that it is. Oh, he can predict based upon these patterns. God predicts based upon these patterns and things throughout all of history. And now he makes a decision according to his prediction because of what Israel has done throughout all the centuries. And blah, 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 blah. No, no. God doesn't predict anything. God knows. Everything is always before God. Have you ever thought about that? He's outside of time. Everything is before him at all times. He's not in time. He doesn't work his will according to a, a, a calendar. I suppose he lays things out so they happen according to our calendar, but he doesn't have a calendar up there and go, on July 6th, you know, he doesn't do that. Everything is always before him. That's what it means to be omniscient. He knows all things all the time, the beginning, the end, the whatever. And none of, there is no beginning and end for him, I suppose, but he knows all of it at all times. And I'm glad that he does that. So foreknowledge means more than simply knowing beforehand or prediction. It means to pre-plan and to foreordain. And it's important that we get that. And maybe we need to wrestle with that some more. Peter's big point was that the cross was God's plan. And here's where it gets crazy. And yet he shifts the responsibility onto who? His listeners. Does he not? Let's look at it together. This is crazy. Look at 23, or the end of 23, I suppose. What does he say? He says, you, 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 you. They're like, huh? You, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. It's right there. God used evil men to accomplish his purpose, yet never violated their will or removed their culpability by doing so. Peter thus presents the total sovereignty of God alongside the complete responsibility of man. Now that apparent paradoxical truth, we talked about that a minute ago, is affirmed throughout Scripture and is illustrated in Luke 22, 22. Jesus said it himself. He brought it, brought it out to his audience and listeners himself. He said this, um, speaking of his betrayer there, our Lord said this. He said, the Son of Man is going as it has been determined, right? There's the pre-planning of God. And then he says, but woe to that man through whom he is betrayed. And that was Judas. You know, bottom line, men are responsible not for God's plans, but for their own sins. Those who were involved in the death of Jesus had no cognition of God's predetermined plan. They were simply doing what their sinful hearts were inclined to do. They didn't reject and murder Jesus because God had persuaded them to do so or that because they understood God's plan. No, they did it to 
protect their own selfish interests and to preserve their money-making scheme at the temple. And hopefully we'll be able to talk about that more in the future. But they had a racket going at that puppy, man. And they wanted to preserve that. And when Jesus came in, he shut them down. These guys had no concept of the true plan of God because they didn't know him. Even though they said they did, they did not know him with their hearts. And yet, they played right into the plan of God perfectly. It's amazing. Notice how Peter said, you. Who is he referring to? Right there, he's referring to the Jews. Earlier, he called them the what? The men of Israel. He's addressing his own countrymen. Guys, this was your Messiah that God sent that you murdered. He's telling the Jews this. He's telling the Israelites, Israelites this. This is what he's saying here. And then who are the lawless men that are mentioned in that text? They were the Romans because they were the ones that ultimately nailed Jesus to the cross. And they were the ones that rejected the Mosaic law. They were lawless. They didn't follow God's laws. It's all right there. It's brilliant. It's beautiful. It's amazing. And it's confusing and mysterious and a mystery. And, you know, we'll wrestle with it forever until we go off to be in glory. And then all of a sudden we'll get it and we'll go, that's what it meant? Oh, man, it didn't mean either of our perspectives. Dang! And hopefully we won't be called to account that we beat people up with our perspective the whole time we were a Christian. Because that's what we do, is it not? No, this is what it means! You know, and we go to war over these things. And we get before the Lord and it's like, both of you yahoos were wrong. Holy, holy, holy. Hold on a second. Both of you yahoos were wrong, right? Ah, you got the Arminian here, you got the Calvinist here, and finally they'll hug. That was a good joke. It probably never happened. Anyways, um, it's crazy stuff, man. The Word of God is just insane. Now, the third proof of Jesus' Messiahship is proof number three, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, quintessential proof to who Jesus is, the highest proof. Um, he says in 24, God raised him up. There's that resurrection language. God raised him up. And then he says, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for what? For him to be held by it. And I can't wait to talk about that in a minute. That is sick. The resurrection was the central message in apostolic preaching because it is the climax of redemptive history. It is the cherry on the, on, the, on the Sunday. It is the culmination and finality of it. It is the pinnacle of redemptive history. The resurrection proves beyond a doubt the deity of Jesus Christ, and it solidifies his credentials as the Messiah. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is also the, the rock-solid guarantee of our own future resurrection. The resurrection is the ultimate proof that God accepted the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Without the resurrection, Jesus' death becomes nothing more than the death of a noble martyr or the death of a madman, quite frankly, or the death of a what? Common criminal. Without the resurrection, we have nothing. MacArthur said this, and it's in your notes. The greatest proof of Jesus' messiahship is not his teaching, and some really believe that, and it's not his miracles, and some just lean so far to that. That's the biggest proof, and it's not even his death. No, he says it's his what? His resurrection. It's his resurrection. Now, we've got to spend a little time defining what resurrection is and isn't according to the scriptures. We, we must understand what it means because there's a lot of conflicting views of what resurrection is out there in the church and outside of the church. Now, hopefully, 
this information that I've got here will help to undergird our theology or to strengthen or to build our theology of what resurrection is. Let's just go through some of these things together real quick. Resurrection is not revivification. Resurrection is not revivification. Revivification occurs when someone who dies comes back to life only to die again. Uh, we saw Jesus bring Lazarus out of a tomb back to life, right? And some say, look at that resurrection. No, that wasn't a resurrection because guess what? Lazarus died later on when he got a little older or got the, you know, the flu or whatever, okay? That's revivification. That's to bring someone back to life. And I think he did it with a gal named Dorcas, worst name in the Bible. Uh, yeah, hey, Dorcas, <laughs> he's making fun of me. That's my name. Right? Terrible name, but she was a beautiful gal in the Lord. I think her cross name is Tabitha. That's a better name, I think, right? I always think of the Flintstones when I think Tabitha or the Jetsons, whatever. But, but she was brought back to life, but she was not resurrected. Lazarus was not resurrected. They were revived. And uh, resurrection basically means this, and this is where the rubber meets the road for us. We need to get this right because I think we always have our language wrong. Our, our, our explanations are wrong, but resurrection means to die and to be brought back to physical life forever. That's what resurrection means. There's no more death. So every time you see resurrection in Scripture, when you see Jesus, what Jesus did, he's not going to die again. It's impossible for him to die again. Resurrection means to be brought back to life and to never, ever, ever die again. And guess what? Guess what the Bible calls that? It calls it eternal life. Whenever you see eternal life or everlasting life, that's what it means. It means to be brought back forever. Resurrection is not a second chance for salvation after death as reincarnation and purgatory purport. According to the scriptures, every person who's ever lived or will live uh, will be resurrected either to everlasting punishment or to everlasting life. The determining factor in this is what people do with the gospel. If they repent of their sin and place their faith and trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ, they receive the resurrection of eternal life in the presence of God. If they reject the gospel and choose to remain in their sin, they will receive the resurrection of eternal damnation and punishment apart from God. According to the Bible, okay, according to our Bible, the Protestant Bible, 66 books, it's not the same with the Catholic Bible, which is 76 books or whatever. They teach something differently in those additional books. In our Bible, according to our Bible, the Bible, the canonized scripture, there is no such thing as purgatory or reincarnation. And I say that with all sensitivity towards those who have a Catholic background. There is no such thing when someone dies. That's it. There's no second chances. And I, I think this is why people flock to those religions that teach that. Because in their minds, they can just continue in sin or whatever, and they'll get another shot at it after they die. And they can just stay in a perpetual state of living for themselves in sin and doing what they want, and they'll just keep getting a shot at it. And one time I come back as a butterfly, that means I did a little bit better. If I come back as an alligator, not so good. You know, and, and it's just, it's, it's lunacy. It's lunacy. When you die, you're done. You're going to be resurrected in, either into everlasting life with God or everlasting punishment because you rejected the Holy Son of God, because you rejected the gospel. Resurrection does not mean soul sleep. 
as some teach. Seventh-day Adventists are big on this. Soul, soul sleep is the idea that when a Christian dies, both their body and soul remain in the ground asleep until the resurrection. The scriptures actually teach that when a believer dies physically, their body goes into the ground as a seed and their soul goes to be with the Lord. There's no soul sleep there. There's nothing in scripture that would say so. In fact, whenever you see uh, a reference to so-and-so was asleep or whatever, whenever you see sleep and asleep, usually that's a term that is used to describe those who are in Christ because they are in, their body is like in a state of sleep awaiting the resurrection, but their soul is off with the Lord. That's what it means. What does the scripture say itself in 2 Corinthians 5.8? It says, absent from the body, what? That's right, present with the Lord. So guess what? We don't remain in some tomb or something. Man, I hope he comes back soon. It's dark in here, and it's stinky, right, you know? No, man, your soul goes off to be with Jesus. And when he returns, man, the body and the soul are reunited. And there's a resurrection that takes place. And guess what? You'll never taste death again. Never. It's so awesome. When we're resurrected, our bodies will be raised up, what? Incorruptible. And the soul is rejoined to the body forever. And our bodies will be better than they are now. I can't wait to have a six-pack. I can't wait to have abs. Right now I have an ab. I want abs. I don't know if you get that. That's like earthly, but hopefully. What are you going to need them for? You're going to go to the beach? You know, you're in heaven. Stupid. P Peter takes it further, man. I always have to throw those dumb jokes in there. Right? I need to stop. Maybe not. Um, Peter goes on to say that the resurrection of Jesus Christ did what? Something very amazing and powerful. It what? Loosed the pangs of death. What does this mean? All right. Death has always been the biggest enemy of humanity. Oh, no. Individual selves have and sin have. Yeah. But death has always been the biggest enemy of humanity. It always has been. Death has always been the biggest enemy of humanity. Even those who deny the existence of God and the devil and evil are troubled by death. Some even horrified by the notion of it. Death is the scariest thing known to man. It is. People tremble in fear when they face it or when they're about to die. Death, uh, for the most part, is a, a thing of uncertainty. So many people don't understand what it leads to or what comes after it. And I think that's what incites so much fear, right? It's like, what is there to come after? Is there a heaven? Is there a hell? Or what is it? Or is it just annihilation? Is it just, I mean, there's... For so many minds and hearts, and it's so tragic, there's uncertainty, and I think that incites and brings about great fear and trepidation. And, and that's why people don't want to die. They're so afraid of it. But Peter preached that the resurrection of Jesus loosed or removed the pangs or pains of death. Paul backed this up in 1 Corinthians 15, 54 to 55. What did he say? He said something so amazing. He said, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we don't have to agonize over death as the rest of the world does. We don't have to be ruled by the fear of death or by uncertainty that comes after it. God has done an amazing thing for us in and through Christ Jesus. 
Therefore, we can live in freedom from the bondages of sin, the bondages of the law, and the bondage of death. Christ, my friends, is our victor because he conquered death. And it is through him that we have victory and resurrection. Isn't true? It's so true. Because he rose, we have victory over death. We don't have to fear the day that we're going to breathe our last breath. Because what? Our body goes into the ground as a seed. Our soul goes to be with the Lord. And at some point when he returns, they'll be rejoined. And it's going to be all good. It's going to be amazing. Oh, I can't wait for it. I actually want to just die to get to that point. But then again, I don't. Because there's so much to be done here, I think, in this earth. And I've got kids and all that. And I love my family. And I love my sister-in-law. And we just planted a church. I can't go yet. Lord, did you hear me? But at the same time, it's a glorious thing to, to, to anticipate it, right? I mean, to be raised up in an incorruptible body, to be with Jesus forever in his kingdom as he rules and reigns, as he does what we want him to do so badly now across the board. Wow, we'll get to be a part of that. We don't have to have fear of death. Why? Because Jesus loosed the pangs, the pains. He removed them of death. So good what he's done. Look at the end of 24, and this is, this is powerful. He says, it was not possible for him for Jesus to be held by death this is an amazing and loaded statement he said that death was powerless to hold Jesus let me give you five reasons as we kind of get towards uh, tying this thing up this is good stuff five reasons why death why it was not possible for death to hold Jesus number one Christ had in himself the inherent power to die and to live again. We read that text earlier. It was that John 10, 18 text. He said, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. And then this is where it comes in. He says, I have authority to lay it down. Okay, I can lay my life down. And then he says, I have authority to take it up again. Isn't that awesome? That is amazing. And he says, this charge I have received from my father. Christ had in himself the inherent power to die and to live again. Therefore, death couldn't hold him. Why? Because he could raise himself back up through the power of God. God would raise him up. God and Jesus are the same, essentially, right? Isn't that amazing? He could lay it down and he could take it up. In our culture, in our world, people have the ability to take their own life, don't they? We see it all the time, and it's, it's one of the great tragedies of humanity. But no one has the power to raise their life back up, do they? Once that bullet strikes that skull, once those pills take effect, whatever it is, they cannot bring themselves back. Although we wish they could, I suppose. But Christ had the power to lay it down and to take it back up. Pretty amazing thing. Sounds like something that only who could do? God, with a big G. Wow, I wonder if Jesus is God. Maybe some in the audience that Peter's preaching to, are, it's starting to click a little bit here. Oh, he did have the, oh, okay. Second reason why death could not hold him. The, digni the dignity of his person rendered it impossible that he should be held by death. Colossians 1, 15 to 17, listen to this. It says, he is the image, of, and we're talking about Jesus. He is the image, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, 
visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and what? For him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. And then again, up in Colossians 2.9, for in him, what? The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Christ was God, is God. How can death hold God? It cannot. Somehow it could for three days according to the plan of God, but it can't keep him in the tomb. It can't restrict him and bind him by that forever because of the dignity of his person, who he was rendered it impossible that he should be held longer than the appointed time. He is God. Number three, his redeeming work was complete, which made it impossible for death to hold him. This is an interesting thing. Listen to this. This is a Spurgeon quote. He says, remember that the reason why Jesus died was because he took the sin of his people upon himself and being found in the sinner's place, he had to suffer the sinner's doom, which was death. But after he had endured the penalty, that is, after he had died and remained the appointed time in the tomb, how could he be held any longer in the grave? After he had said, it is finished, and after the predestined hours for a full examination of his work before the throne of God had passed, why should he be detained any longer? He was the hostage for our debt, but when the debt was paid, who could keep him in durance vile? I love those terms. Having borne the penalty, he was free forever. And so, as Paul writes, Christ, being raised from the dead, dies no more. Death has no more dominion over him. And then he says, in that he has satisfied all the claims of the law of God. What hand can arrest him? What power can hold him captive? He died for our sins, but he rose again for our justification. And his rising proved that all his people were accounted righteous in the sight of God. Wow. Woo. It just gives me chills. Man, I, I, just, I, I love Spurgeon. I hope you guys love Spurgeon. He's a phenomenal preacher. The prince of preachers, one of the best. I love it. It was not possible while there was a God in heaven that Christ should remain in the tomb as his work was done, justice demanded that he should be let go. Man, when the work was complete, and it wasn't complete until those three days, he couldn't be held in that tomb any longer. He had finished his objective. Therefore, he was freed by the mighty power of God, by the Holy Spirit. He was resurrected. An amazing thing. Number four, he had his father's promise that he should not be held by death. This prophetic guarantee was given by King David a thousand years before Christ came. Peter quotes it in our, our next study section as we keep moving through Acts. Psalm 1610, it says this, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, which is the abode of departed spirits. And then David says this, Or let your Holy One see corruption. David was not speaking about himself in this psalm. He was speaking about the Messiah, about God's Messiah, about God's Son. The Father had promised that he should not be held by death. He would not remain in that tomb. 
that he would not um, see corruption, so to speak, which would be the decay and decomposure in those things that come. Whenever you see that in Scripture, corruption, a lot of times when associated with death, that's what it means, that decay and that decomposure and those things that have happened to us. No, no, no. God had promised that his son, the Messiah, would not experience those things through being held by death. Amazing. Number five, the perpetuity of his offices prohibited him from being held by death. What are the offices of Christ? Well, he holds the office of priest. Hebrews 7.17 says, For it is witnessed of him, you, he's talking about Jesus, are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Okay. A man's priestly duties ended at his death. And yet, the scripture says here in Hebrews 17 that Jesus' priestly duties continue. Why? Because he's alive. Right? You get it? Isn't that amazing? He holds the office of priest. He is a priest what? The Hebrews author says. Some think it's Paul, maybe somebody else, maybe Barnabas. You are a priest forever. He has an everlasting priesthood. He is the priest forever. So what? He can't remain in the grave he has to come out and fulfill his priestly duties. And that's what he does at the throne of God today. B, he holds the office of king, right? Psalm 45, 6 says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Jesus is part of the Trinity. His throne lasts forever because he's God. His throne endures forever. It continues on and on and on and on. Jesus affirmed his kingship in several places in Scripture. When he was asked by Pilate if he was a king, he replied, yes, simply yes. And then maybe he added, but my kingdom is not of this world. And he made some variation there. Luke 23, 3, John 18, 36. He is the king. He is the, 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 the matchless and mighty king, the everlasting king who, will ro who rules now, but who will eventually rule over his kingdom completely on earth. How can a king who is held by death rule? When a king died, the monarchy had to find somebody else to rule. Guess what? Jesus is alive. He's still the king. Amazing. Awesome. See, he holds the office of redeemer. Job spoke about this everlasting redeemer in Job 19.25, he said, For I know that my redeemer lives. Yes, he was speaking of God in his moment, but he was also prophetically speaking of the future because here's where it comes in. He says, For I know that my redeemer lives, and at last he will stand upon the earth. He's speaking forward of the future reign of Christ. Christ is our redeemer. He is our Redeemer. He is our Savior. He is the one who redeemed us, who bought us at the price of His blood. And guess what? Because He rose, He lives on forever and ever and will remain our Redeemer throughout all ages. Amazing stuff. I just want to just kind of close it out right now and uh, by reading one more little section of Spurgeon and then, and then just leading us in a time of communion as we reflect upon what we've learned. This is another great quote by him. Spurgeon said this, he said, because each of his offices is everlasting, ordained of God in perpetuity, continuous, therefore he must rise from the dead. Think what the consequences to us would have been if Christ would not have rose from the grave. First, we should have no assurance of our own resurrection. Secondly, there would have been no evidence of our justification. I might have said, yes, Christ took my debt, 
but how do I know that he paid it? Yes, Christ bore my sins, but how do I know that he put them away? So if he had, if he had never risen from the dead, we would have no proof that we were justified. Thirdly, he says, if he had never risen and gone up to heaven in his human body, we would not have had anyone to take possession of heaven on our behalf. He says, now we have a man in possession. We have a wondrous representative before the throne of God who has taken possession and grip of the divine estates. What a joy it is for us to know that he is there to represent us before God. And then fourthly, if Christ's body had remained in the grave, there could have been no reign of Christ and no sitting down at the right hand of God as there is now. He would have been in heaven in the same respect as he is here as God, but there would have been no visible appearance of the representative man, no nail holes, and the once crucified Redeemer.